Hello and welcome to another episode of Fantastic Fights, the podcast about a middle-aged man playing adventure game books out loud on the internet. My name is Hieronymus J. Doom, and this is a bonus episode made possible by the generosity of my patrons over at www.patreon.com forward slash hjdoom. Thanks to their largesse, I'm doing a bonus episode every month in 2023, and this time out we're delving deep into the 80s nostalgia as we look at Peril from the Stars, the 1985 Transformers gamebook by gaming legend Dave Morris, with art by Bob Harvey, who we saw in our last major episode. He did seem to get about a bit in the 80s. Before we get started, there's a small update about the new game I've been working on as a patron reward. Crown of Crimson is a complete role-playing game about deranged cultists seeking martyrdom in a fantasy empire. It's intended for two players to play over a single session, and I'm happy to report that the core system is now complete, and I'm currently in the process of assembling my incoherent ramblings into a final draft. Players can choose from one of six pre-generated cults or create their own and travel the land, doing miracles, creating converts and getting into sticky situations with the local authorities, before travelling to the Imperial capital for a showdown with the Imperial court. I'm really pleased with this one. It's a more ambitious game than either of the preceding games I've put out as patron rewards, and it's got a bespoke system I've designed from scratch as well. This will be going out free to all my backers, and I'll provide updates over on Patreon as the project gets further along. Now on with the show. You couldn't be a small boy in England in the 80s without being exposed to Transformers, unless I guess you were brought up as a member of a deranged cult. But Transformers, the clever toys which appeared to be an everyday object or vehicle, but which could be turned into a robot by earnest fiddling, were everywhere. Some of them were extremely cool in both modes. I had Mirage, which turned from a great F1 car into a pretty decent robot. But some of them, I'm looking at you Ironside, were an absolute dog's dinner in robot mode. As well as the toys, Transformers was supported by a fairly enjoyable TV show, and both American and British comics, the latter of which was some of the most ambitious storytelling ever seen in a promotional vehicle. In the fullness of time, there was also an animated movie which featured the final performance of Orson Welles and which scarred me for life with the early body count of my favourite characters. These shocking deaths were a rather cynical way of refreshing the range of toys to focus on new characters, but they still rank as some of the most harrowing things I'd ever seen in a kid's movie up to that point. Kind of like Game of Thrones for the under-10s. Now, obviously, Transformers has never gone away, although Hasbro, a corporation built on making children happy, run by people without a single trace of human decency, has tended to focus more and more on the adult collector's market in recent years. Various Transformers TV shows have come and gone, including the well-regarded Beast Wars, and there's been a series of Michael Bay-helmed big-budget Transformers movies. Only seen one of them, and I did not care for it. Michael Bay, despite being one of the most successful directors in Hollywood, has the thwarted energy of a perpetually horny teenage boy who got picked last in PE. But back in 1985, Transformers could do no wrong in the eyes of me and my compatriots. We were thrilled by the idea of these giant robots locked in a vast war which played out on Earth. And I still love the idea of giant robots fighting to this day. I'm always delighted when a film like Pacific Rim or Robot Jocks comes along to indulge my taste for mechanised mayhem. Peril from the Stars was the first adventure game book based on the Transformers, and the cover features both Jazz in his robot form and Starscream in his jet fighter form, fighting over what looks like an observatory in the background. I genuinely didn't think I owned any of the Transformers game books, but when I saw the cover of this one, whew, I was hit by a sudden jolt of pure and unadulterated childhood. It was like going back in time. I think the cover art is pretty good, unlike the cartoons, which tended to simplify the robot forms in order to make them easier to render and also to give them functioning joints. The two cover stars here are accurate renditions of the actual toys, which is nice. This is a short book, only 68 pages long, so I'll be interested to see how many actual decisions we get to make along the way. 
Strap in and let's play Peril from the Stars. So we get the introduction, which is only short, so I will read it. Uh, this is an adventure story, but it is not like most adventure stories. There's one big difference. You are the main character. What happens in the story depends on your decisions. The fate of the Transformers, whether the Valiant Jazz will prevail or whether the evil schemes of Starscream will defeat him, is in your hands. Do not read the pages of this adventure in numerical order as you would an ordinary book. You should start at page one, of course, but where you go to from there will depend on what you choose to do. Prepare yourself to meet the Transformers. So I always liked Jazz. I mean, he turned into a Porsche 911, what's not to like. And my absolute favourite Transformer, pretty much from day one, has always been Starscream. So very excited to spend time with these characters. In my head, Starscream is a gay icon, and I can't work out whether that's true or whether I've just decided that's true because I love Starscream. But anyway, your uncle and aunt are astronomers, but not the sort of astronomers who just sit around calculating things. They are much more adventurous than that, and are always travelling to exotic corners of the globe to watch distant nebulae through some of the world's most powerful telescopes. Presently, they are staying at the secluded Los Palmos Observatory, high up in the mountains. You are lucky enough to be able to visit them for a week, and you are looking forward to quite an unusual holiday. My husband was an astronomer for a while, and I will say that he did spend most of his time sitting around calculating things, so shade thrown by Dave Morris there, but shade accurately thrown. Uncle Jack picks you up at the airport and you begin the long drive up into the mountains. Uncle Jack seems to be absorbed with some problem or other, for he is puffing furiously at his pipe, as he often does when he's thinking hard. Ah, yes. Nicotine very much the thinkiest of the carcinogens. After a while, you stop at a petrol station, and Uncle Jack has just gone inside to pay the attendant, when you see a brilliant flare of red in the sky. Do you want to tell Uncle Jack about the light, or do you want to keep quiet about what you saw? Well, Uncle Jack can go and look at his stars. I'm keeping that sweet flare to myself. Uncle Jack gets back into the car, and you drive on up towards the observatory. You watch the breathtaking mountain scenery fly by, but your uncle hardly notices it. Puffing on his pipe, he is miles away. Suddenly, the engine sputters, and the car lurches to a halt. Uncle Jack tries the ignition, but it is dead. What on earth? he mutters to himself. At that moment, a sleek Porsche pulls up behind you. You and your uncle stand baffled, for there is no one at the wheel. Uh, and then we get moved to the literal next page. I have to say that this has got one paragraph per actual page, so there is an awful lot of blank space in this book that's already very, very short. Are you having trouble? inquires the Porsche. I'm Jazz, one of the Autobots. I venture to say that your car has been immobilised by a null field. I genuinely cannot remember what Jazz sounds like, so apologies if I've got it completely wrong and he's actually got a thick Welsh accent. Suddenly the Porsche's doors and hood unfold as it undergoes an incredible transformation. Within a few moments, it is no longer a car that stands beside you, but a tall robot warrior armed with a powerful laser rifle. Jazz gestures at your uncle's car. I'm afraid I'm going to have to change to my robot form to keep my circuits shielded from the null field. We'll have to go the rest of the way to the observatory on foot. The three of you set off towards the observatory. As you approach, you see the slim figure of your aunt emerge and come hurrying towards you. Sue! Your uncle calls out to her. This is Jazz, and he says he's a friend. Aunt Sue watches Jazz suspiciously. But then she smiles at you and ruffles your hair. I'm glad to see you're okay. Come on inside now, it'll be getting dark soon. Sure enough, the sun is already dipping below the horizon. You can feel the chill of night in the air. As you enter the observatory, Jazz suggests that you all go up to the dome. He is going to explain his mission to you. So... Uh, once again, we have not been allowed to make any 
choices, any choices at all. So that's a bit disappointing. Well, we made one choice, and the choice led directly to Transformers, which is good. But I feel like the other choice probably also led directly to Transformers. So how much of a choice is it actually letting us make? I suspect not very much. A spiral staircase leads up into the vast dome of the observatory. As you reach the top, the first thing you see is the telescope itself. It is vast, perhaps 15 metres long and surrounded by the computer-operated hydraulic supports that can direct it to any specified point in the heavens. Jazz turns to your uncle. Dr Richards, can you tell me of any strange incidents to have occurred around here recently? Uncle Jack takes out his pipe. Well, the first thing was when we were observing the Faruqi cluster late last night. There was a brilliant burst of red light in the sky, and the instruments all went haywire for several minutes. A similar phenomenon occurred this morning just as I was about to set off for the airport. And, as you know, the ignition on my car failed on the way back here this afternoon. It is as I suspected, says Jazz solemnly. That wasn't very solemn. Nodding his head. All the evidence points to one of the deadliest Decepticons of them all. The name hangs in the air like a death knell. Starscream. With night falling outside the dome, the three of you listen attentively as Jazz tells his story. The Transformers came originally from the planet Cybertron. One group of us, the Autobots, the group to which I belong, are peace-loving and mean no harm to the people of Earth. But the other group, the evil Decepticons, delight only in conquest and destruction. Recently, while studying our ancient records, I discovered a space pod containing many powerful weapons was launched from Cybertron when our planet passed close to your own. This happened many millions of years ago, and the pod must have been drifting in orbit around your sun since then. Obviously, Starscream has also learned of these weapons and hopes to acquire them. Oh, a choice. A choice. An actual choice. If you want, you can ask Jazz for more information about Starscream, or you can ask him why he thinks Starscream is interested in the observatory. I think we'll ask him about the observatory. Oh, and there is a picture of Starscream on the facing page of this entry. It's alright. It's pretty solid. I wouldn't say it's remarkable, but it looks like Starscream, and... You can't really ask for more than that. Starscream needs a powerful telescope to locate the weapon pod in space, replies your Autobot friend. He could not use the telescopes and computers of Decepticon HQ, because that would alert his fellow Decepticons to his plan. Treacherous Starscream is forever plotting to take over from the mighty Megatron as leader of the evil forces. If the weapon pod falls into his hands, he may well succeed. The thought of that makes you shudder. Jazz tells you that he must spend a few minutes analysing the enemy's probable course of action. He bows his head, deep in thought. I think it's the thing I love most about Starscream, is the fact that he is constantly, constantly trying to betray Megatron. And Megatron never actually kills him, because I think Megatron just finds it sort of funny. Because, of course, Starscream is wholly incompetent at everything, including treachery. Jazz suddenly says, Perhaps you would like to be entertained by some excellent Earth music. Loud orchestral music blares from Jazz's built-in speakers and echoes around the huge dome. Hey, yeah, turn it down, Jazz, you tell him. Uncle Jack covers his ears. Aunt Sue does not seem to be bothered by the noise. Sorry, Jazz says to you. I keep forgetting that you Earth people can't tolerate the same level of noise that we Transformers can. My speakers can reach 180 decibels, he remarks proudly. You see, it sounds impressive, but I've seen Motorhead live twice and Mertzbau live once, so 180 decibels feels like just warming up by their standards. I say that. Okay, I actually looked it up because I was curious. So um, a Motorhead concert reached around 130 decibels uh, during a live performance in 1984. The noise was so great that it caused the ceiling to crack and the band was forced to stop playing as a safety precaution. Sounds like a good night out. Suddenly, everyone goes quiet. Jazz stops the music. 
Straining your ears, you hear the sound of an aeroplane approaching the observatory. That star scream, murmurs Jazz, listening to the drone of the aircraft's engines. But why is he coming in at subsonic speed? You think you can hear a second set of engines along with the first. Maybe he's going slower so that a slower Decepticon can keep up, you suggest. Jazz nods slowly. Yes, it all fits. You see, I've noticed that your hands have been behaving very strangely for an Earth person. You all look round to discover Aunt Sue holding a gun on you. Sue! exclaims Uncle Jack. She is under the control of Bombshell, another Decepticon, says Jazz. He must have attacked the observatory this afternoon when she was alone in here and implanted one of his cerebral shells into her head. She is beaming radio signals to tell her what to do. Put your weapon down, Autobot, Aunt Sue says dully, or I will shoot Jack. This is a good twist. This is a fun twist. I like this. I had assumed that when she didn't notice or care about the uh, music, that was just her being kind of awesome. But no, no, it turns out that was her being controlled by a maniacal insecticon, I want to say. Anyway, we have a choice. Uh, well, it's not really a choice because you need to have the deactivated null field device in order to progress. And I do not have that device. So let's find out what happens to those of us who didn't find it. There is a blinding pulse of light from Jazz and everyone shields their eyes. Taking advantage of your aunt's confusion, Jazz steps forward and seizes her before she can pull the trigger. She struggles but cannot get free of the Autobot's metallic grasp. When he pushes her hair back, you see Bombshell's implant as a bump under the skin behind her ear. Using a narrow laser beam from his rifle as deftly as a surgeon might use a scalpel, Jazz removes the Cerebro shell and crushes it underfoot. Aunt Sue staggers over to your uncle. Thank goodness I'm rid of that ghastly device. I've been under Bombshell's control for hours. If not for Jazz, I might have killed you all. Outside, the scream of Starscream's jets builds before cutting out. You can now only hear the low hum of Bombshell's engines approaching. Starscream's gone to supersonic speed, realises Jazz. Everyone, get down! As you throw yourselves to the floor, one side of the dome explodes into fragments of stone and twisted steel. Through the broken gap, you can see the starry night sky. A powerful fighter plane sweeps in and drops towards the floor of the dome, transforming into the forbidding figure of Starscream. A low rumbling in the sky follows him like a thunderclap. Because of his supersonic velocity, he got here before the sound of his jets did. A horrible blue shape hangs in the air above the dome and then starts to descend. It looks like a giant insect. Bombshell prefers to remain in his insecticon form for now. He knows that it frightens you. There is a picture of Bombshell uh, in his insecticon form and it is a timely reminder that considering the tagline is robots in disguise, Bombshell's disguise is absolutely terrible because he looks like the unloved love child of a vacuum cleaner and a locust, and he's the size of a family sedan. Hardly inconspicuous. I know he can change size to become a obvious robot of nearer insect size, but he is just an incredibly obvious robot. While Bombshell keeps an eye on the four of you, Starscream marches over to the telescope and starts to swing it across the heavens. As I'm sure you've guessed, Jazz, he says with a note of triumph in his tinny voice. I'm looking for the weapons pod from Cybertron. Aha, there it is, floating close to the asteroid belt. He takes out a small metal sphere. It starts to bleep when he presses a stud on the side. This is a homing beacon which will call the pod down to Earth. It will fall with the destructive power of a meteorite, of course, so Bombshell and I shall watch it from a safe distance. What shall we do with the humans, Master? says Bombshell in a creepy humming voice. They shall be our slaves. As for Jazz, assume your normal form, Bombshell, and destroy him. Now asks whether we have the Cerebro shell that was controlling 
uh, ant, which we don't. Comforting to note that even in a 65-page book aimed at the under-10s, I still suck. Jazz lifts his photon rifle as Bombshell moves towards him. Bombshell seems uneasy. His step falters. Will you not assist me, mighty Starscream? He whines. Bah! Are you afraid of Jazz? He is hardly the strongest of the Autobots. Starscream also moves towards your friend. Jazz seems uncertain what to do. Then suddenly, he jumps backwards and presses a button on the panel behind him. It is the button that controls the telescope's movements. The huge telescope rotates quickly and descends onto Bombshell. Its hydraulic supports pin the foul Insecticon to the floor. Starscream glances up into the sky. Following his gaze, you see a tiny pinprick of light. It must be the weapons pod entering the Earth's atmosphere. Jazz starts to bring his flamethrower to bear on the two Decepticons. But before he can do so, Starscream unleashes a concussive blast which stuns him. Farewell, humans! Rages Starscream as he begins to resume his aircraft form. I must depart before the weapons pod smashes this place to rubble! His mechanical laughter is drowned out by the roar as his jets ignite. You look at Jazz, but he is still too groggy to act. Starscream's homing beacon, which is attracting the falling weapons pod straight towards it, lies on the floor beside the telescope. So you can get the homing beacon and hurl it at Starscream, or you can put it in your pocket. Well, Starscream is my favourite. I love Starscream, so I'm going to put it in my pocket. He deserves a win. He deserves a win. He never gets to win. You slip the flashing beacon into your pocket as Starscream roars away from the dome. Bombshell has also recovered now, and he quickly flies after his master. Nice touch that Starscream, tree to form, leaves Bombshell to fend for himself. Your uncle and aunt are standing around, dazed with shock, as Jazz searches frantically for something among the debris. Do you want to tell Jazz you have the homing beacon? Um, no. Too bad you don't mention that you have the homing beacon, because that is exactly what Jazz is so anxious to find. The descending weapons pod is heading straight towards it. It will hit the ground exactly where you are standing. The impact will destroy the observatory, to say nothing of its human occupants. Best that we close the book on this dreadful scene, for this is the end. Now, admittedly, I did deliberately get myself killed in that book. It still doesn't count as successfully finishing the adventure. My unblemished record of failure remains intact. Well, it's a slender and simple affair. I guess I should start talking about it. Oh, wait, what's this? Turns out this very episode is more than meets the eye because I also bought a second Transformers adventure game book, Dinobot War. And I'm going to play that as well, just because I love Transformers. Uh, this was also by Dave Morris and also illustrated by Bob Harvey. And the cover, which is great, shows uh, Grimlock, the Tyrannosaurus Rex-shaped Transformer, tangling with an actual Triceratops, while some Pteranodon-y things look on in sort of mild interest, I would say. Uh, it's, it's a good cover. It's a really good cover. Dinobot War you are on your first visit to Disneyland in California. In a single morning, you have sailed safely past a pirate battle on the Spanish main, crept nervously through a ghost-infested mansion, taken a trip on an old paddle steamer, and plunged on a breakneck ride through a mountain. Now you are riding on a train that twists and winds its way through Disneyland. You find yourself passing scenes of prehistoric times where animated models of giant reptiles clash gorily. Our unnamed protagonist certainly gets about the globe, doesn't he? Or she? Or they? As you get down from the train, you decide to look for a hot dog stand. Then you notice some kind of disturbance up ahead. Security guards and police are moving people away from a barrier. Beyond the barrier, you can see signs advertising a new attraction now under construction. You wonder why the crowds are being moved away and you decide to investigate. So we can try and sneak past the barrier, 
or climb into the electrically powered buggy nearby and try to drive past the guards. I mean, who among us could resist the chance to try and start a police chase in an electrically powered buggy? So that's what we're going to do. You clamber into the buggy. It is a simple vehicle which goes at walking speed, used by Disney staff to cruise the streets. A walkman rests on the seat next to you. You glance at the cassette in it. Cats. The soundtrack from the musical. Clearly there is evil work afoot if some unknown menace is leaving Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals in the uh, possession of innocent bystanders. Like Cats really is terrible. I like a musical. I do. But Cats is awful. It was awful before the nightmarish film, which I have seen, and was a genuine travesty. But yeah, Cats, terrible, terrible musical. Looking across the controls of the buggy, you find them simple enough. You press a button and the motor purrs quietly. Do you wish to leave the Walkman here, or do you want to keep the Walkman with you as you drive past the barrier? Um, that's an interesting decision. Few articles more cursed than a Walkman with a cassette of cats in it, so I think I will leave the Walkman here. Hey, kid! You jump up as the guard's loud voice blares in your ear. You try to dash for it, but he grabs your arm. This area's off limits, he tells you. You can't go past this point. You are determined to get a sneak preview of the new attraction and to find out What's so mysterious that they have to put up a barrier? Or, as it's actually written, that they have to put a up barrier. What will you tell the guard? That you are a messenger? Or that your father is a Disney executive and is supervising the new attraction? So the nepotism angle is the one I'm going to go for. He looks doubtful, but finally he says, Can't do any harm to check. Takes a radio from his belt. Your heart sinks. It will not take him long to find out that you are lying. You will probably be thrown out of Disneyland. Have you lived if you've not been thrown out of Disneyland? I mean, there's a life goal. Just as he's speaking into the radio, however, an elderly woman comes striding over to the barrier. What is this, young man? She demands as she waves her umbrella in the guard's face. You're a bit big to be picking on children, aren't you? While the confused guard tries to explain to her, you slip away and head towards the new attraction, the Wizard's Cave. There is a picture of the woman remonstrating with the guard. And I don't know quite how this has been accomplished, but considering this is Disneyland, Bob Harvey somehow rendered the scene in a way that makes both participants just look unbelievably English somehow. She's wearing a sort of knee-length, I guess, tweedy skirt and what seems to be a similar kind of jacket. Yeah, there's just a genuinely very English vibe to the illustration. Still, we're in and that's the main thing. You decide to take a look at the wizard's cave. You enter a tunnel strung with spotlights. Sturdy wooden posts hold up the roof and walls. The Wizard's Cave is due to open in only a few weeks, and yet there is no sign of the bustling activity you would expect. Why has the work stopped? You hear voices ahead and tiptoe towards them. Are a bunch of Disney executives doing some kind of satanic ritual of the kind that I am absolutely certain goes on all the time in Disneyland? Reaching the end of the tunnel, you look out across a floodlit chamber. A few workmen and security guards are standing by, while five men in suits talk intently. Wow, it is. Disney executives. Your gaze travels around the chamber. You can see plans and chalked guidelines for the layout of the wizard's cave, but it seems that work has stopped. The five suited men are obviously in charge here. One of them, a thin man wearing thick spectacles, is holding a curious device that looks like a very heavy rifle. He is talking to the others about it, and if you strain your ears, you can just about catch what they're saying. So we have a choice, or this is more choices than we've had in the entirety, I think, of the uh, previous book. So we can listen to what they're saying, or creep past them to investigate the rest of the chamber. Uh, heavily armed 
Disney executives? What could they be talking about? Let's listen in. They are discussing the strange rifle, and you hear one of them refer to it as a stasis gun. They're obviously very excited by what they've discovered about its powers. Seems that the stasis gun has the power to freeze objects in time. This ride must be absolutely balmy if holding people in stasis is an intended part of it. You watch in fascination as the scientist throws a coin into the air. A blast from the stasis gun freezes it, causing it to hang unsupported in midair until he unfreezes it with a second blast and allows it to continue falling. Let's fetch some torches, you hear him say to the other men, and I'll show you what else we found. They are coming over towards you. To avoid detection, you have to slip along the wall of the chamber. And there's a picture of the suited type who looks like an open university presenter from the 1970s only, uh, without the beard that you would normally expect. There's a, a strong science vibe to him, I would say. You edge through the shadows by the wall of the chamber, hardly daring to breathe in case you are spotted and thrown out. Luckily, everyone's attention is on what the scientists are saying. In the gloom of the back of the chamber, you come across a strange object. It appears to be a flying saucer, partially buried in the rock wall. Could it really be from another planet? Perhaps abandoned by alien visitors in Earth's distant past? An abandoned craft that has waited millions of years to be excavated? You are amazed, and even a little frightened. But you want to find out. You make your way towards the saucer. Apologies if you can hear my cat in the background. He has not been fed for several hours. And this is a source of deep distress. He's very angry now and it is an hour and 45 minutes before his next feeding time. It's going to be a long afternoon. Your foot catches on a metal briefcase. It makes a scraping sound on the cavern floor, but the others do not notice. By touching a panel on the side of the case, you cause it to flip open. Inside is an assortment of strange items. You are quite sure they were not made by any human hand. Suddenly the beam of a torch plays upon you. You are dazzled by the light and hear a man cry out. Running footsteps move towards you. Things are getting perilous. The men close in around you, shining their torches at you. Hey, it's just a kid, says one. That's a relief, murmurs one of the workmen. I thought it was an alien come to life. A security guard strides over to you. Hey, he says, you're not allowed in here. What can you do now? If you allow them to take you out of the cavern, you will never find the truth behind the saucer. You could be missing the most amazing adventure of your life. What else can you do? And uh, we're given a sorted choice in the sense that it says, if you give yourself up, this is the end. So we could end the adventure here, but we can try using one of the items in the case instead, and that allows us to continue. So that's what we'll do, because we haven't seen a single Transformer yet. You reach into the case and pull out a large metal sphere with a dial on it. You don't know what it does, but there's only one way to find out. Turning the dial may be very foolish, but with several guards about to seize you, you are not thinking too clearly. As you move the dial, you see them stare in shock and then begin to disappear in a whirling haze of light. The light soon grows so bright that you have to cover your eyes. Just before you do, you fancy that you see a giant cat leaping towards you. You have no time now to think about it. You are passing out. And there's a picture of the security guards who uh, once again have a strangely English cast to them and the sight of a cat-like Decepticon sort of superimposed on the scene. It's pretty good. Pretty good. Very characterful. You slowly recover consciousness. You are lying on your back in the midst of a steaming jungle. Mist swirls thickly all around you barely muffling the animal cries that echo distantly through the strange land. Suddenly, a deafening roar thunders out, chilling you to the marrow of your bones. You hear something moving towards you, something large. 
the creature appears as a monstrous pale silhouette against the mist. Do you want to run away or do you want to see what's coming? I'm going to see what's coming. A towering, saurian shape lumbers into view. It is unmistakably a Tyrannosaurus, but a mechanical one. It is much more sophisticated than the animated dinosaur models you saw in Disneyland. This one moves like a living creature. You feel a tingle of dread as it peers at the bush you are crouching behind. What have we here? It says abruptly. Puny human. You can hardly believe this. It talks. It seems to have spotted you. Terrified, you run blindly into the undergrowth. You seem to have reached safety when suddenly another voice comes from right behind you and makes you jump in surprise. You turn around to find a robot brontosaurus looking at you. So there's a picture of Grimlock for It Is He. And it's pretty good. It very much looks like the toy. Bob Harvey, decent hand drawing the old robots. Uh, the robot Brontosaurus watches you with intelligent eyes and you relax a little. Aha, a human youngster, it says. You are not surprised that it can talk. After all, if you can accept the idea of a huge, intelligent robot dinosaur, why shouldn't it be able to talk? What are you doing here? asks the robot. If you say you're running away from a monster, that's one option. Or you can say you don't know. Well, I'm not really running away from a monster. I'm running away from another robot, so I think I might just say I don't know. The mighty robot dips his head down. I'm supposed to be meeting my fellow Dinobots near here, he tells you. Before you can answer, a gleaming Saurian shape comes crashing through the undergrowth. Nervously, you edge around behind the Brontosaurus. At least he seems friendly, and the newcomer is a robot Tyrannosaurus and looks very fierce indeed. The two robots obviously recognise one another, and it seems that the Tyrannosaurus, whose name is Grimlock, is in charge. He barely notices you, and then stalks off into the swirling fog. Sludge, he calls back to the other gruffly. Follow me. Bring the human if you wish. Sludge starts to reply, but Grimlock is too far off. We'd better hurry, he says to you. He won't be pleased if I get myself lost. In the comics and in the TV show, the Dinobots uh, have a very unique way of speaking. It's all very kind of caveman-y. It's always like, me, Grimlock, no like! Which is sort of fun, because it sort of plays on the idea that dinosaurs were, with the best will in the world, not the sharpest tools in the box, which was the prevailing opinion at the time that the Transformers were being created. Here, though, they just seem to be kind of normal which is a shame but uh, we get another choice this is already much more interactive than the last one so we will go with the Dinobots I think with you straddling his armoured shoulders Sludge lumbers off after his leader Grimlock takes little notice of either of you he holds a small device in his hands and sweeps it around as he walks I'm picking up a reading says Grimlock after a while there is a loud shriek from high above and a winged form descends from the overcast sky. At first you think it is sweeping to attack and you cling desperately to Sludge's neck. Then you see the dull sheen of burnished metal. It is another robot, a pterodactyl this time. Swoop! calls out Grimlock to the newcomer as he glides towards you. Have you found the others yet? Of course I have, jeers Swoop. I can see much further from up here than you can on the ground. Slag is spoiling for a battle as usual, but Snarl is weak from the lack of sunlight. Swoop wheels and flaps away across the treetops. He makes no allowance for the fact that you cannot move so quickly on the ground, and Grimlock and Sludge have to break into a lumbering run to keep up with him. He leads you to a clearing to where two more robots await you. The Dinobots are assembled. Snarls Grimlock. Let the Decepticons beware. I feel as though this book is revealing that Dave Morris was not an expert on uh, Transformers lore and was kind of just making stuff up. Which, fair enough. 
I can't imagine he was paid a great deal for this as work for hire. Uh, there is a picture of Slag, I want to say, is the Triceratops robot. And it's Slag sort of glaring at Grimlock. Again, pretty good. Bob Harvey knows how to do a robot. Grimlock surveys his troops. Now it is time to resume our Autobot forms, he tells them. In the past hour, you have seen more astounding sights than in the whole rest of your life. But what happens now is the most staggering thing of all. In a series of clicks and whirs, the bodies of the Dinobots begin to change. The mighty metallic flanks open and swing back, rearranging their outward appearance, until five sword-wielding robot warriors stand in a circle around you. Always one of the more pointless things, in some ways, that the Dinobots could transform. And indeed, they very infrequently seemed to transform in the cartoon. They mostly just stuck to being giant robot dinosaurs because the appeal of a Dinobot is not that it's a robot that can turn into something else. It's simply that it's a giant robot dinosaur. Snarl's transformation is slowest. As the last of his golden armour pieces swing up and latch into place, this mighty robot sways. My solar panels are not receiving enough sunlight in this mischrouded place, he says. I am sluggish. That's the worst thing about California in the year 4 million BC, says Swoop to you with a chuckle. The weather's so lousy. You almost pass out from shock. Your worst fear has been confirmed. The strange device you found beside the saucer has somehow carried you back millions of years in time. Uh, the choices seem to have dried up a bit as we're being just punted to another page. Don't let wondering why I have summoned you here, says Grimlock to the other Dinobots. The Dinobots grumble, especially Slag and Swoop. Silence, roars Grimlock. I will tolerate nothing less than complete obedience. Slag turns and points at you. Why do we discuss our battle plans with a human child in our midst? He demands. How do we know that our every move will not be observed and reported to our enemies, the Decepticons? Do you want to tell them that you can help them in their mission, or do you want to leave right now? I will tell them I can help them in their mission. Some kind of exciting adventure seems like it might be in the offing. Grimlock himself explains to you why they have gathered here. Somehow, two Decepticons called Ravage and Laserbeak have come here out of the future. I suspect that they arrived with you. They have the power to disguise themselves as cassettes. So you may not even have noticed them. Ah, yes. However, I didn't take them with me because one or other of Ravage or Laserbeak was disguised as a cassette of cats and... I was unprepared to even entertain the notion of touching it. What are they after? you ask. Not far from here is the spot where our spaceship, the Ark, crash-landed on Earth. All the Transformers, both Autobot and Decepticon, lie asleep within and will not awaken for millions of years. We suspect that Ravage and Legacybeak hope to find the Ark and destroy all the Autobots while they lie helpless. This talk of spaceships reminds you of the saucer you saw in Disneyland. Could it have anything to do with the Ark? You tell the Dinobots everything that has happened to you. I have been in this area for several days, says Swoop. It is nothing to do with the Ark. That crash landed in the Earth centuries ago, but I did see a flying saucer landing in the hills to the east. Grimlock is angry. Why didn't you report this earlier? As I said, it had nothing to do with the Ark, Swoop replies. Still, we must investigate. Wherever this saucer comes from, it, its owners have the power to travel in time. It was their device, unearthed after millions of years, that brought our young friend here. Come. Rapidly transforming to their Saurian forms, the Dinobots hurry after their leader. Again, is there any particular point in transforming into dinosaurs from giant robots in this situation. Maybe if you spend too long 
in one form instead of the other you just start to get really itchy and uncomfortable and you have to kind of transform just to sort of stretch your limbs out a bit after an hour or so you begin to reach higher ground the ground is drier and sunlight pierces through the mist snarl grows stronger as his solar panels draw energy from the light suddenly a real dinosaur a triceratops stomps from the undergrowth right in front of you you give a yelp and scramble back towards the dinobots hey a triceratops says sludge it's a dead ringer for you slag i cannot now remember what voice i'm doing for any of these beyond grimlock i know one of them's from yorkshire is it slaggy's from yorkshire the slag can be from Yorkshire. Dead is what it'll be, all right, replies Slag. A sheet of white-hot flame shoots from his mouth. You expect to hear the Triceratops roar in pain as it is engulfed, but the flame doesn't seem to bother it. Real dinosaurs became extinct millions of years ago, calls out Swoop. Chortling, he flies through the Triceratops as though it weren't there. You notice a cine projector hidden in the bushes. As you pass in front of it, the Triceratops disappears. It's just a hologram, an illusion, grunts Snarl. Someone's trying to scare off unwelcome visitors. He walks right through the holographic image. You reach out and turn the projector off. See? Calls out Swoop from above. The flying saucer came down in that cave there. You survey the cave entrance. It is too low for the huge Dinobots to enter. If you go in, you must go in alone choice of entering or not so uh yeah obviously we go in very brave says grimlock approvingly even slag nods in respect you slip into the shadows inside the cave and find a shelf of rock which you crawl along looking back you see the dinobots clustered around the cave entrance sludge waves to you you soon reach the end of the rock shelf you find yourself looking out over a large underground cavern the saucer which you saw in Disneyland rests on the floor of the cavern. When you saw it before, or was that later, it was coated with centuries of dust, but here it sparkles like new. In front of the saucer, two thin aliens are setting up some kind of scientific equipment. So there's a picture here of the saucer, which is quite good, and the aliens, which are not. Imagine a roast chicken with big webbed feet, and you've kind of got what they look like they're not great you can also see another projector now you understand who was trying to scare you off they have small round bodies and several eyes all around their heads they are talking to each other in a weird high-pitched language something makes you glance up on a ledge above you you see the decepticon known as ravage he looks like a huge black panther waiting to pounce he is so intent on watching the aliens that he hasn't noticed you. Do you want to shout a warning or creep down to the saucer? I will shout a warning. Your voice echoes from the cavern walls. The aliens start to chatter excitedly and wave their spindly arms. They do not understand what you are trying to tell them, though they are more curious than frightened. What you have succeeded in doing is drawing Ravage's attention. His eyes glitter with savage hatred as he bounds down from his ledge. He lands on top of you, knocking all the breath out of your body. You think it is the end, but he merely glares into your eyes for an instant, and then leaps down towards the aliens. You will never know why he spared your life. The other Decepticon, Laserbeak, has also emerged from the shadows. He swoops down and kills one of the aliens with a burst of photogenic energy. The other alien sees Ravage rushing towards him and starts to run. Ravage reaches him at the saucer's door. The force of his leap carries them both inside. So, slightly upsettingly, I seem to have got two relatively harmless-looking aliens killed. It's a bit grim. You can hear the Dinobots calling to you and you wave, assuring them that you are unhurt. Where are Ravage and Laserbeak? demands Grimlock. You nervously approach the saucer. Laserbeak swept inside just behind Ravage, but there is no sign of either of them now. The saucer is empty. You assume that the alien managed to flee into the past or future, but it seems that he accidentally took the Decepticons with him. You look around the saucer carefully. You're hoping to find one of the metal spheres which you could return to your own time. 
but the search is fruitless. The only device you can find is a bulky rifle. Are you stranded in the past forever? So, we could use the rifle or go back to where the dino bots are waiting. So we're going to use the rifle because it's a stasis rifle and I guess we can put ourselves in stasis until the present day. The device is a stasis gun with the power to freeze objects in time. Objects? Or people? In sudden excitement, you realise it is your one chance of getting back to your own time. So it, 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 it says you turn to rifle. But what it actually means is you turn the rifle until you are looking straight down into the nozzle. You find a button on the side and your finger touches it lightly. Although you are afraid, you seem to have no other choice. You press the button. I would want to maybe test the stasis gun first to make sure that it's a stasis gun and not a gun gun. Because staring down the barrel of a gun gun and pressing the button, I mean, it's going to solve the problem, but not in a way that's particularly pleasant. The next thing you know, you are standing in the middle of a circle of scientists, cameramen, reporters and astonished onlookers. With a sigh of relief, you recognise the Wizard's Cave attraction in Disneyland. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, a newsman is saying into his microphone. The figure that the scientists found today in Disneyland and have just brought out of suspended animation seems to be not the alien or caveman we'd expected, but a normal modern-day youngster. You have managed to return to the present day, but you have a lot of explaining to do. Will anyone believe your story? Do you believe it yourself? The End a successful uh, run through Dinobot War. In some ways, I think a more accomplished book than Peril from the Stars, but significantly lacking, on this playthrough at least, in any kind of actual war between the Dinobots and the Decepticons. Uh, I felt like the climax of Peril from the Stars was pretty cool. I felt like the climax of Dinobot War was pretty weak. Anyway, I'll go and... Uh, have a look at all the various different options available in both books, and then I'll come back with some closing remarks. Tatty bye! So, I finally beat a gamebook on the recorded playthrough, and it was one aimed at young children. On the one hand, I shouldn't feel remotely pleased with myself, but on the other hand, I'll take any win I can get in this deeply cursed timeline in which we're all living. I'm quite pleased that I ended up doing two books for this episode. I don't think either of them is really any good. But they're both bad in interesting ways, and crucially, they're both bad in different ways. Now, I want to stress that their shortcomings are not due to any lack of ability from the author. Dave Morris was responsible for Heart of Ice, often cited by people, including me, as one of the greatest adventure game books ever written. Now, in these books, we see a writer trying to square an impossible circle. How do you write an adventure game book to a prescriptive brief which offers both meaningful decisions and a satisfying plot using only a scant handful of pages? The simple answer is, you can't. Compromises must be made, but I don't think it's actually possible to make compromises which will lead to a positive outcome. Some fundamental element of the book will be severely underdeveloped, regardless of which approach you take. In the case of Peril from the Stars, the authors managed to create a story which feels like a fairly authentic Transformers story. But by focusing on that, he's been unable to create much in the way of meaningful decisions. By the time he's put in the key story beats, meeting Jazz, uncovering Bombshell's control of your aunt and facing down Starscream in the climax, there's almost no space left for actually influencing the outcome of the narrative. Every decision ultimately leads to the same place, and often the only variation is whether your character gets to do a cool thing, or whether Jazz takes pity and does the cool thing for you. Now, to be fair, there are several different ways for the approach to the observatory to play out, but it feels like this is adding variation to the least interesting part of the story. Getting to choose exactly when and how you can meet the transforming robot feels a bit like wasted effort. 
Of more interest is the path where you can run into Starscream and Bombshell before entering the observatory. That at least feels like a proper variation of the story because Jazz is trapped in car mode for a while, which creates an interesting challenge. There's also in this book a couple of items that you can pick up which influence later events, and that's a nice touch. The second item, the mind control gadget, is locked behind acquiring the first item, the null field generator, and that's a bit of a shame. I will say that getting the null field generator is actually a little bit tricky, which provides an incentive to go back and scour through the options to try and get hold of it, so that's cool. Whether, by luck or judgement, the robot characters in Peril from the Stars are reasonably decent sketches of the characters as they tended to appear in other media. This is important because children get very attached to their favourite characters and they need to be presented properly. That the Transformers characters are relatively easy to get right is helped by the fun way that their robot personalities are inflected by their disguises. And so... Jazz is a slick, action-focused kind of character, very appropriate for his Porsche 911 disguise, although I do think giving him a thick German accent would have been fun. Starscream is a maniacal master of the surprise attack, very suitable for a attack plane, and Bombshell prefers to hide behind his mind control. It's hard to see that Bombshell has a distinctly insecty character, but I don't think he has a distinctly insecty character in any version, so that's fine. Unfortunately, the same cannot be said of Dinobot War, which feels to me like the weaker of the two books. Peril from the Stars lacks for interactivity, but the story beats are perfectly serviceable. You get to watch giant robots fight, and you get to do a few cool things around the edges to make you feel like more than just a spectator. The setting and the narrative thrust is tight and lean. It's not going to win any awards, but given how few sections were available, I genuinely don't think you could do much better while still delivering on the brief. Dinobot War leans more towards decision-making, but that comes at the cost of the narrative. Whereas the confrontation with Starscream and Bombshell plays out in a few different ways over several linked sections and has a defined beginning, middle and end, the final confrontation with Ravage and Laserbeak in Dinobot War feels incredibly perfunctory. By the time the author has got you back in time and introduced all the Dinobots and their Decepticon adversaries, there's precious little space for anything else, and the addition of more choices and more endings compounds this problem, leaving the story lacking any meaningful structure and any sense of escalation. I'm going to assume that having all the Dinobots appear was mandated by the publisher, but it is the thing that probably does the most to cripple this book. They pop up one after the other and show themselves off, but aside from an optional fight between Grimlock, Sludge and Ravage, they don't really do a great deal. They also don't seem especially recognisable as characters being far more considered and less elemental than their cartoon counterparts. The appeal of the Dinobots was essentially they were a force of chaos. They were good guys, heroic characters, but thanks to their aggression and boundless stupidity, they almost felt more like villains at times, and that made them sit in an interesting place in the, the wider narrative. They were like the destructive force that it was okay to root for. If you take away the affordances suggested by their deeply nonsensical robot disguises, you take away what makes the Dinobots special. Obviously, our understanding of dinosaurs has come a long way since the Dinobots were introduced in the mid-80s, but there is something primarily appealing about a dim but potent force of destruction. There's a Godzilla quality to them, which I definitely always appreciated, because I love me a kaiju film, and sadly none of that makes its way into this book. You're left with something unsatisfying, and unlike Peril from the Stars, where I'm not sure there was much scope for improving on the material, Dinobot Wars does feel like it could have easily been done much better. Cutting back on the Dinobots, preferably to a single character, I would suggest Grimlock would have been a good start, but honestly, the time travel plot is all kinds of rubbish before you even begin. And again, 
that may well be something that was mandated by the publishers. If it were me and I had a free hand, I'd have done a simple story with a single Dinobot and maybe a single or maybe two Decepticons fighting in a built-up area and maybe riffed on the idea that the authorities can't tell which one is the good guy and which one is the bad guy because they're both just really destructive. Dinosaur Robot Rampage is clearly the way to go, but sadly that's just not what we get. I imagine that Ravage and Laserbeak were chosen as adversaries because their robot forms have animal characteristics, Ravage being a panther, Laserbeak being some kind of bird, but their role in the narrative as spies and infiltrators and henchmen of Soundwave makes them an odd choice to scrap with the Dinobots. They're really all about the sneaking and skullduggery, and that fits very badly with the Dinobot straightforward Smash Mouth style of problem resolution. Perhaps if Soundwave had also shown up, it would have made a bit more sense as a cold, calculating sort of character. Maybe there could have been something fun in Soundwave trying to lure a Dinobot into a trap. That would have been cool. But as it is, there's just nothing here that feels authentically Transformers, and there's nothing in the story structure or the decisions that you make that really stands out strongly enough to counterbalance that deficit. It is possible that I'd feel better disposed towards Dinobot War if I'd played it as a child. I had a strong sense of deja vu as I read through Peril from the Stars as long-buried childhood memories gently resurfaced. Nostalgia is a hell of a drug, but I think my analysis of the two books makes sense even with the confounding variable of one being subconsciously associated with a much happier time in my life when I didn't know who Donald Trump was and didn't have to shop around for home insurance on a regular basis. One of the things I try to be very careful about as I analyse old media is my own predilection for the past. Although my politics and my personal convictions are extremely left-wing, I'm very much a conservative when it comes to entertainment. Most of my favourite writers are dead, my favourite TV shows and movies are from the 1970s, and I harbour a deep distrust for most music made after the year 2000. And I flag this because it's easy for antiquarian impulses to spread from an appreciation of retro pop culture to an appreciation of retro culture, which is an incredibly dangerous thing to start appreciating, because even though our current civilization is awful in many ways, socially speaking, we have come on a long way. So I think it's actually positive to look back on these two books based on a thing I loved when I was nine and think, yeah, this is a bit rubbish, basically. There's a difficult design challenge presented by the setup of these books, which does merit inspection. Is it possible to make a game book this short that actually satisfies all the competing demands of the format? Looking back over the history of this podcast, we can see a number of different books tangling with this question. There was the competition book, Steel Eye. There was the Nightmare book, also by Dave Morris. There's the Doctor Who book by Jonathan Green, and there was the He-Man book. And of these, only the He-Man book really managed to deliver an experience that captured both the feel of the source material and also deliver a satisfying play experience. I think the Doctor Who book did a decent job of feeling like it took place in the Doctor Who universe, but suffered from basically the same problems as these lightweight efforts. The Nightmare book was fairly good, if simple, but played very fast and loose with the source material because adapting the actual source material would have been a terrible idea. The most successful of these, the He-Man book, interestingly, even though it's not any longer than the Transformers book, managed to pack 150 sections into its slim pages. And that's more than two and a half times the 58 separate sections I counted in Dinobot Wars. 
uh, once you subtract all the pages devoted solely to artwork, it really is very short. What can you accomplish in 60 sections? I don't think you can accomplish a great deal. I'm kind of tempted to try and do a little 100 section game book to see if I can manage to find some kind of balance between all these competing demands. And I suspect I will try and I will fail because it's just really difficult. So even though it's hard to do much in-depth analysis of these two game books, I think they nonetheless illuminate design questions and design challenges that I can take away and apply to other things that I write. And that's all that I really ask in terms of reviewing these books. It's not enough for me to say that a thing is bad. I need to know why it's bad and I need to know what, if anything, I could do to improve it. And in this case, I don't think there is very much I could do. And that in and of itself is interesting because it suggests that, for me at least, there is a lower boundary of interactive sections below which the game book cannot function as intended. And I'm going to be thinking a lot, I think, about what that lower boundary might realistically be, because I suspect with enough experimentation I could put an actual number on it. One thing I will say is that the artwork is generally pretty good. Bob Harvey is an experienced illustrator and very good at hands, and his use of strong lines and block shading suits the material perfectly. His human characters are very expressive, and his robots have a suitable sense of heft to them. They don't have the streamlined and more humanised designs which the comics and the TV shows have. They are properly chunky renditions of the toy designs, and honestly, I genuinely like that. While the more humanised designs have virtues in terms of delivering emotion and narrative, the sheer physicality and the alien proportions of the toys add something to the experience, even if it does mean that Jazz looks like a metal sumo wrestler when in robot form. I think that's all I've got to say about these books. I'm very pleased that they were more interesting as a pair than as a standalone experience. And Peril from the Stars does at least have a certain charm to it. I'll be back later this month with the next instalment of the Fighting Fantasy series, which is Skylord, which is the last of the science fiction adventures to be published. It was also about half the price of the other books from a similar point in the series, and I'm sure that neither of these factors is something to worry about. Join me for that, and in the meantime, thanks very much for listening, take care, and I'll see you soon.